Hello, this is Dr. Nancy O'Reilly, and I'd like to welcome you to Smart, Amazing Conversations with Dr. Nancy. The most important thing is showing up. Don't think that you have to bring anything. Bring yourself, show up, and, and remain steadfast. If you are in a position of leadership and a position of management, bring women along with you. Supporting women is my passion and my purpose. And talking with other women and men who promote women's leadership my favorite thing to do. I've yet to meet a woman who did not know what she really wanted. She was just either afraid to ask the questions or she was afraid of what the answers meant. Their stories connect us and help us to understand that the possibilities are endless if we support each other and lift other women up. Trust is created by persistent identity. I show up as myself time and time and time again. And trust is built. It's one conversation at a time. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy O'Reilly, and I'm very happy to welcome Allison Sands to Smart Amazing Conversations with Dr. Nancy. Allison is a former FBI agent, intelligence analyst, and security consultant who is passionate about keeping people safe where they live, they work, and they play. That's why she founded the Project Hummingbird, where she currently serves the CEO. Project Hummingbird seeks to define community conflict resolution to de-escalate and defuse potentially violent situations. With over 15 years of experience applying psychological principles to shaping human behavior, Allison is passionate about sharing, <clears throat> excuse me, about sharing tested techniques that will de-escalate and produce more constructive results for potentially violent conflicts. Her bachelor's degree in psychology from Northwestern University and her master's in security policy from Georgetown University helps Allison combine academic research in psychology and behavioral sciences with real life experience in law enforcement to create training that can save lives and careers. This is an extremely important topic. Welcome. We, we, we need these kind of programs so much, even more so than we possibly know. But what I want to first start talking about is you. You know, nobody gets to be where they are without experiences and reasons for why they do. So, Allison, what I'd really like for you to tell us is how did you get to be you? I mean, here you are doing this, this uh, Project Hummingbird, but you have had a history with the FBI. There's reasons why you even started doing what you're doing. So tell me about you. It's an unusual path, I would say, and not one that I would have seen looking forward, but now connecting the dots going backwards, right? It's always that way. But um, so in in college, I was a psychology major, religion minor, and was really just interested in why people act the way they are, the behavioral sciences, the cognitive sciences. um, And that was all pre 9-11. And then 9-11 happened. Right when I was studying psychology and religion, and then all of a sudden, you know, extremism, fundamentalism, Islamic terrorism became such a need that we had before, but we didn't re- maybe quite realize before. So I completely shifted my focus from where I thought I was heading, which was the academic route through the PhD process and, and research and teaching and, um, and shifted completely and went over to the national security side. So, you know, at that time I was studying Islam and had read the Quran and all these different political movements from all over the world and, the, and studying the similarities between them. And so it was just a natural fit. So rather than going to a PhD program, I went to Georgetown and got my master's degree in security studies. And from there was a presidential management fellow for the U.S. Navy, um, which is a two-year program that is like a highly competitive program for government managers. 
became an intelligence analyst with a similar focus, right? So doing primarily counterterrorism, counterintelligence with a focus on the Middle East um, and the Persian Gulf. And then did some overseas security consulting. So lived in Abu Dhabi for three years prior to returning to government as an FBI agent. So my whole life has been a mixture of this call to serve, this desire to take some skills and some research and make it practical, right? Whether it's to, yeah. you know, do targeting for terrorists, like hunt terrorists overseas, or to be an FBI agent and run investigations, um, mixed with a really strong foundation in academic research. Um, so that's sort of my, in the Venn diagram of my life and my passion, sort of the mixture of academics with practical applications. Yeah. Um, had a great experience in the FBI, did national security there as well. So again, counterintelligence, counterespionage, that, that kind of more um, strategic level national security type of cases and left for mostly personal reasons and had every intention to come back, but found a really good home in corporate security. And what I thought was so interesting were those same skills that I was using to hunt terrorists and recruit spies were so applicable in corporate security too, that I decided to just stay on this side where I thought I could have a big impact, have a louder voice. And that's what drew me to start Project Hummingbird is I saw this critical need and not only law enforcement, but security in general. And it drove me to start this project where I, I knew that I had some unique contribution to add to the conversation. Well, you know, I mean, we, we've seen so much violence in our country here lately that it's almost, you seem to be probably busier than you've ever been. When I was working as a director of an EAP, I was not only working with healthcare, but I was working with other corporations. And none of them really thought about violence. None of them really had anything, any pl anything planned in their companies, how they would deal with any kind of violence or any kind of conflict within their corporations. All they really wanted to do was make sure that business ran smoothly. So, I mean, of course, we would get calls when, when things went south. You know, violence in the workplace became a topic of conversation. But, but I think overall in, in our country, you know, I think we've all been set back on our heels, you know, with the, the George Floyds and all the different things that have occurred. And of course, the Capitol, oh my God. We've got to open our eyes and really understand that, you know, we, we live in a world where we have to be aware, we have to focus. You know, I, I still remember the first time I started flying because I actually, the first time I flew after 9-11, I was flying to New York City to be a, a crisis responder for NOVA, National Organization of Victim Assistance. Of course, it was a criminal case. And so the attorney general had taken over it and it was really a crime scene, but, but we, we didn't know anything. We had to do everything by the seat of our pants. And I mean, every day we learned something new, but it seems like we're still in some ways in our country, just still sitting there kind of waiting for things to happen versus really planning and doing something about it. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, no, you bring some really great points. So, you know, while this whole project was rooted in a need I saw in security and law enforcement, what I've discovered along the way is that precisely because the skills and techniques that we teach are geared towards avoiding violence, right? Creating some critical space between an encounter and actually having to lay your hands on another person, that what makes my program unique is that precisely because it is not just a tactical program geared towards physically dominating an opponent, it directly applies to 
crisis counselors and healthcare professionals and anyone who might face a potentially violent encounter, which you're exactly right, increasingly could be corporate managers, right? Could be anyone. And what I've noticed is that not only are those skills not taught to, like you mentioned earlier, to, to managers and workplaces, but they're very rarely taught to even healthcare professionals and other first responders. And so, Yes, this this started because I saw this need in law enforcement where I said, okay, you know, in my FBI training, which was probably the best in the world, right, at what they do, but it was so geared towards tactical skills, firearm drills, um, physically dominating an opponent, right? Like I can take down an attacker using five different kinds of arm bars and and disarm an attacker with a gun pointed to the back of my head and, and all of these different things that trained me to keep me alive. But what it didn't do was train me to do what I what I ended up doing almost all the time, which was talking to people, making connections, trying to elicit cooperation, right? Trying to get information, build trust, build these connections. And we didn't learn any of those things. And quite the opposite was true, actually, in that because so much of the recruitment and the training has these sort of physical toughness aspects associated with it. I started to believe actually that the skills that I brought to the table, right, these kind of communication, these soft skills were somehow less important. But I learned really quickly on the street that actually those are the skills that are going to keep me alive. Yeah, right? And I yeah, think that yeah. that as a woman, that that is a more obvious message, right? Because sure. I learned really quickly that I don't I don't care how much tactical training I get and how many weapons I carry, most of the time I'm gonna to have to outsmart or outmaneuver my opponent because I'm not gonna be able to outfight or outrun him for the yeah. most part, right? And if I'm on the street, right? And I have my wits and my weapon, I would way rather use my wits first than, and my weapon second. But if we're not trained that way, right? If you put law enforcement out on the streets with a toolbox full of hammers and then we're surprised that all the problems look like nails, right? So all yeah. it takes is to look at the news to see, oh, well, this is a hard situation, right? Because we're not giving officers and security professionals in general tools. the tools they need to, to conduct yeah. the full scope of their duties. We're giving them this tiny portion that ex that's the extreme minority of the time. And let me just say, you know, because I get this, this feedback a lot. Yes, there are definitely instances where lethal force is necessary and we absolutely need that training. I'm not saying that what, we're, what I'm trying to do is not to replace that. It's to complement that, to say that, you know, despite how I was trained, you don't need to anticipate every encounter with the public as a potentially violent situation. You don't have to approach every uncertain situation with gun drawn, right? Yeah. There's there's a huge gray area between you know a peaceful confrontation and and a lethal force encounter, and we're sort of ignoring that whole middle piece. And yeah. what I found is, you know, to your point, like yes, there is so much violence in this country right now. It's not just police officers. It's not just in the security field. It's everywhere. So this huge gray area of how do we learn how to more effectively and constructively have conflict is a, something that we all need. And the reason yeah. that Project Hummingbird focuses specifically on law enforcement, one, because that's my experience, but, but two, this is, we don't have any wiggle room to get this wrong, right? So no. corporate managers, sure, like so, there's definitely workplace violence, absolutely, but people are dying, right? We have a thousand police, uh, fatal police shootings every year, fatal. Countless more that aren't fatal. Countless more that are the George Floyd type of situations where there was no shooting, but people end up getting hurt or they end up dying. So there's no space to say like, oh, well, that's just the cost of doing business. Well, yeah, I, th I think what you're saying is, and which I believe is it has to start with everyone. 
You know, I mean, I, I took gunfight training. I mean, this was something I did when I started to carry a gun is that I took gunfight training. But the principle behind gunfight training was to not get in a gunfight. Right. So I think what we as a country need to understand is, is that by dialogue and finding tools that we can teach in companies and in law enforcement. Well, sensitivity training, of course, has been so and extremely important in law enforcement, especially when it comes to uh, the battered women. I mean, this was something way back I was working with, but you know, there was no sympathy, there was no empathy for, for battered women. I mean, the point is that we have, to ha we have to teach empathy. We have to teach problem solving and resolution and conflict resolution. You know, constructive confrontation training was one of the most important tools that we taught, mm -hmm. which was helping manage to understand how to de-escalate before it ever happens and how to have conversations that lead to constructive outcomes versus destructive confrontations, which, you know, I mean, we had people being shot in, work, in the workplace. We had people, but, you know, they were, they were coming to work with guns, rifles in the backs of their trucks. I mean, we as a, as a country have to understand that we're all responsible for keeping ourselves safe but you know what you're doing is extremely important. You know what? What do you think? What do you think is the key now? I mean, we 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 see so much of it. We talk so much about violence. But how do we begin to educate the public as to how they become involved and how they can help as well in the schools, for example? I mean, the schools we we see the bullying. It, it, to me, it seems like there has to be almost a an overwhelming understanding of. What comes first? What's most important for us? So what do you think about that? Yeah, no, you're exactly right that um, what needs to come first, I think, is more of a values-based, officer-based, or specific individually-based approach where each person is coached on understanding and having the self-awareness to understand their own stress responses, their own conflict style, Right? So what we find all the time, especially in law enforcement security, is we just rush to the problem. We rush to act. There is no moment where we think, okay, where you stop and you assess and you, and you breathe, all those, those things. Right? And so the second step would be assessing your surroundings. Right? Do, is action actually required at this time? Like you said, the goal is to avoid that conflict if you can avoid it. Right? So is immediate action even required? The third step would then be to say, what is my desired outcome? And this is a step that we all just blow right through, right? So um, it seems obvious, but it's not, right? So if you're in traffic and you're blowing your horn or something, what are you, you're trying to achieve? If you really think about it, you're like, oh, to let that other guy know, I think he's a jerk, right? Yeah. So yeah. if you don't have an actual desired outcome, you actually don't have a conflict. All you're having is a stress response, right? So then go back to step one right? Controlling yeah. your own parasympathetic nervous system, controlling your own stress responses and staying true to your values, right? And going backwards and saying, is this actually a conflict at all? And then only at that stage after that, right? So now we're at step four, engage. And so, you know, I think especially in training towards law enforcement security professionals, we skip right past that, right? We have some yeah. and rehearsed phrases. We have some non, like some, some ways to, to induce compliance where you, you know, physical ways to induce compliance that does not intend to hurt the person. These, these less than lethal type of techniques, but we're skipping, I think the piece that is most important, which is yeah. truly being able to under, to control yourself, 
to then better use those same subconscious and unintentional forces that everyone experiences to your advantage against your opponent so that you can then shape and control the situation. And then we have a whole series of elicitation techniques and influence techniques and ways to lower the social volume and ways to make yourself a harder target, right? It's very, very specific tools and techniques that can then be applied based on you controlling yourself and your reaction, assessing your situation, figuring out what your outcome in, and then you just pull out of that toolbox and say, okay, what I really want is this person to go away, or what I want is this person to calm down, or, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I I guess what I'm saying is, you know, I I always think of the big picture, which is, you know, how do we start at the beginning to really help people to understand, you know, it it is an education what we're talking about. We're talking about educating people how to care for themselves and how to de-escalate and to protect themselves and, and be safe. So I think the first thing is being safe. Where do we start? Do we start in the schools? Do we start in the, the communities? I mean, I think this is there's a broader picture here. I know the, uh, yeah. the project itself is wonderful. But, you know, again, let's talk about some tools that people can take away even today, especially women, for example. You know, I mean, I took gunfight training for a specific reason. I had a permit to carry and it was to protect myself. So, I mean, I think that's the one thing is is that we start out you know, keeping ourselves safe. How do we keep ourselves safe, our family safe, our community safe? And I know I'm, ta- I'm asking you to kind of jump out of your project Hummingbird, but I think this is where it's important for us all to understand why we have these kind of programs in the first place. And maybe I, I don't want to run you out of business, but at the same time, <laughs> no, you know, there's plenty. Unfortunately, there's think, plenty of opportunity here. So let me get to your first question first, which, which is big picture, what needs yeah. to happen first, which is, you know, we need to change the conversation altogether, right? There needs to be a acceptance that there's a different way. There's a better way of doing this. Right. So it isn't an inevitability. We see a thousand fatal police shootings year after year after year after year. It feels maybe new because it's in the news new, but it's news more lately, but it's really not. Right. There is a different way of doing this. There is a there is a space to have this conversation to say this is a foundational skill that should be taught in schools. This is a foundational piece of training that should be provided to healthcare professionals on the front line. This should be the, the norm and the expectation for all peace officers and law enforcement officers that, that yes, right. So it's completely reversing how we do business now, which is there is some sort of violent altercation an investigation is done. And we say, was this justified based on policy? Right. And I will argue that just because a violent act happens, it's not, was it justified? It was, did it have to happen in the first place? Was the entire set of de-escalation tools and techniques applied and there was no other choice, right? Completely flipping this on its head and say, this is a foundational skill. And these soft skills, which tend to always be, or historically tended to be associated with the feminine are not less valuable than these other quantitative and quantifiable skills that are easier to measure, right? Like physical toughness and speed. So in fact, I would say that they're really, they're much harder to ascertain. They require a lot of patience, a lot of practice, a lot of introspection, a lot of strategy, and to recenter these soft skills into the foundations of all sorts of training across the board, specifically where life and death is in play, right? So I don't think that we're having that conversation around violence in this country. Like there's just this sort of reactionary approach. And I want to say, no, it actually begins with saying there's a better way to do this. And that better way is to put these these value-based skills at the yeah. center of the conversation. Well, let's just look at the capital uh, insurrection and the uh, 
destruction and the violence that occurred there. Uh, they didn't have a plan, you know, and I mean that what we heard over and over again. And of course, we, you know, much more than we know from the public. We, of course, the, the, the media is going to sensationalize. And I guess that's the other thing. We, we in our society, violence is, is sensationalized. You know, we don't hear good news. We hear bad news. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the Capitol was a primary example of we watch day after day uh, watching these horrible things happen. And then we find out, or at least we think we're finding out that things were not, there was no plan put in place, that people were not backing one another up and that, uh, you know, it just became just a horrific. I don't really watch the news that much, but I, unfortunately I did watch that. But, but again, what I saw over and over again was the fact that nobody was really supporting anyone during that effort. You know, it was it was us and them all, all all along the way, and that included even law enforcement. And you know, who whose job was it? You know, it's not that's not my job. That's your job. You know, we'll call you in later, or whatever. But but that to me was just a, a realization that we we in many respects don't have plans, and we don't support each other when it comes to uh, de-escalating. If anything, it was more about uh, escalating and increasing the violence during that uh, capital episode. Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, what I saw watching that happen in real time was a feeling of paralysis, right? These security guards were understaffed, right? Those, the Capitol Police um, understaffed. And what, what it felt like to me is this moment where they said, what do I do now? It, that's, yeah. that's the pervasive feeling I got from the vibe. Yeah. We're not gonna shoot these people. We're not gonna tear gas these people, which is a whole nother topic. If they might've been a different population, perhaps they might've, but they didn't. And so short of these very heavy handed tools, what do we do now? And everyone just looked around at each other and didn't know what to do precisely my point, right? There are other things that they could have been trained on how to do that might've been more effective. And it's not fair to put somebody in such a potentially violent situation and dangerous situation with a gun and maybe some OC spray and then their, their best guess of how to handle it, right? Yeah. So yeah. that feeling of like, uh, what do we do now? That's exactly the conversation I think we need to have is if you're not going to shoot somebody and you're not going to let them just run you over and take over the Capitol, what's in between? What are all of those steps and how do we get better at those and explore those and apply psychological principles to how to control human behavior so that we don't have to rely on guns and tasers and OC spray and tear gas? What is all of that stuff in the middle and why are we not focusing more, more heavily on, on that huge area, that huge spectrum of, of response options? Okay, so Allison, we just made, I, I just made a phone call. I'm calling you. And uh, this is after the Capitol insurrection and destruction and violence. I'm calling you in and I want your company to come in and set up a plan for me. So this never, ever happens again. What do you do? Well, this is, this is a tough question, Dr. Nancy, not knowing the details. <laughs> okay. of I, don't, I, don't, I don't ask easy questions. We need you and we need you now. We need I'm you waiting for the now. call from Capitol Police to say, excuse me, uh, who do you think you are? No, um, it absolutely needs to be, you know, of course, I would want to examine what current plans they have in place, which I would expect to not be, uh, they have these like crisis I'm trying to think, I don't want to speak to too specifically about any government organizations, right? But they'll have these crisis incident response plans. And I'd want to take a look at those, of course. But what I would absolutely want to do is there's a whole section in my training called gaining compliance and maintaining order, right? So things to look for where you start to notice, like any 
any group of people, it doesn't just happen, right? There are indicators that show that the emotional volume is going up, that people are starting to look towards each other for permission to continue escalating this conflict, right? So there are key indicators. Make sure that those are not only clear and identified, but that those are communicated to all of your officers so that you don't look around after those people are already inside, right? So first thing would definitely be in my maintaining order and gaining compliance strategy, teach people what the key indicators of sort of this rising emotional volume are, right? Second, you'd wanna make sure that all of your officers on scene have a very clear idea of like we talked about earlier, what is your outcome? Is your outcome to prevent people from breaching this at all costs? And what does that mean, right? Or is your outcome to avoid violence at all costs? Because those might not be, those might be conflicting messages. Um, so make sure that everyone knows specifically what their outcomes are. And then there's a, a ton of research and influence and behavioral sciences about shaping reality. So we talk about shaping reality a lot, which is train your officers in the ability to provide these people agency so they feel like they're in control over what happens next. So that's the opposite of what you sometimes see where there's tear gas and there's people being handcuffed, sitting on the curb and none of that. Maintain, let them maintain agency to control what happens next but shape those options into options that fit within your desired outcome. So where there isn't an option to knock me over and go storm the Capitol, your options are, right, sir or ma'am, that you can stay here peacefully and do this thing, or you will be detained and moved over here, or you will, right? And so that feeling of continuing to let a, a group of people feel like they have control over what happens next will actually help people become more cooperative with you. Yeah. There, were, right. there was one, uh, one officer and they showed this video and he basically was trying to use the nonviolent approach by talking to the uh, people invading the Capitol. He was actually trying to create a dialogue and he, and he actually made a little headway, which I watched. But again, he was not, he was not showing any form of violence. He was not inciting any form of violence. Mm -hmm. He was actually just creating a dialogue. He was trying to, to use the situation to his best knowledge to maybe have a way of just saying, you know, this is the capital. We really need to respect, you know, he was trying to use different methods of, of talking to the, the crowd. But, but I mean, it, it, and in some ways it was actually working because the others, the violence just incited more violence. So, I mean, there really is, when, when that dialogue becomes so extremely important, call it talking down, call it what you want, but, but that to have that dialogue as quickly as possible and, and to identify who the leaders are, identify who, who are the people or who are the spokesmen or who the people are that can actually uh, speak to the, to the masses. Right, and to have the teeth on the back end, right? It's a spectrum, a range of options shaping reality, but you have to be able to enforce the options that you present forward. So if you say either you cooperate or, there was no or in that situation, right? Either you cooperate, please, or go ahead and do whatever you want, right? So that's the other thing is when we talk about these de-escalation, I'm not saying that physical restraint is not necessary. Sometimes lethal force is necessary. You have to be able to try one and if it doesn't work, default to the other one. What we saw in the capitals is that they didn't have the ability to actually oh. impose the order that, that was actually necessary there. So in some ways, that's a great example because you're like, this is how it looks when it goes like, totally wrong. But on well, the other they, they had no backup. There was no had, backup. So they only had those soft skills and yeah. they weren't good enough. 
right? So you yeah. need to have really good authority with real hard skills and physical restraint and those kind of techniques, of course, but we're trained in that. We know how to do that. And you have to have better soft skills and communication skills. What we saw in the Capitol was a failure of both, right? They didn't have, they weren't good enough for the de-escalation piece and they didn't have the authority on the back end to actually control that mob. So of course, right? It was, it was a failure across the whole spectrum sort of fell apart. Yeah, it was one example after another of what you shouldn't do. Yes. You know? but, but again, I think we all felt that they had no choices. They were doing what they could do based on what, what resources they had. But, but, you know, calling for help and not having backup, that's just absolutely. Okay, so Project Hummingbird has come in. And what, what would be, uh, again, the most important thing you could say to the Capitol Police at this time? You'd want to elevate the strength of your entire range of options, right? So the actual support you need should physical control measures be necessary. So that's enough people. That's enough the actual uh, physical restraints that, that stop people, like the, the barricades, those kind of things, right? So the on that far range, which is what you see for most of our BLM protesters, right? Like those kind of actual physical restraints. And then let's elevate everybody's skill set in all of the other de-escalation techniques, which could be things like showing hard and soft authority, right? Hard authority comes from your rank, soft authority, which is your command presence and, and providing a sense of, you know, that ways that you can convey that you, you must be taken seriously. Different ways of communicating, like you mentioned, to communicate differently based on what you're receiving from the other person. More effective verbal and nonverbal communications. Being able to read people's intents better, right? How do you know if this person actually wishes you harm or violence or something? Being able to kind of read those indicators and those cues, lowering that emotional volume, right? Creating a sense of agency where people feel like they're choosing to comply. All of those different things across the spectrum, right? We could, we have hours and hours and hours worth of um, specific tools across that spectrum, but let's elevate all of those to include the ability to reinforce order if things go horribly wrong. Well, what, what we know for sure in this conversation, violence begets violence. That's all there is to it. So yes. Uh, what you're doing is so, so extremely important. Okay, so what are some of the tips you could share yeah. with us how to keep ourselves safe and help us to avoid violence? Because this would probably be the best way to end this conversation is to give me some tools. Give me, give me some tips. You know, tell me what I can do. I'm going to go out and this, this pandemic is ending. A lot of people are very, very unsure about going back out there. They don't know whether to wear a mask, not wear a mask. If they go into a situation, you know, people get upset, da, da, you know. Yeah, people haven't had a human interaction for what's going on. We don't know what to do anymore. We're all confused. So what can we do? Okay, so with the exception of security people whose job it is to rush towards danger, right? Let's keep those people aside, right? So for most everyone else, um, and including people, certain circumstances with law enforcement, you always want to be avoiding conflict at all possible, which seems obvious, but it's it's really not, right? Because think about how many, how many interactions were like, oh, I was at least 50% of that. So sure. we always, when I start teaching people, especially when I'm, when I'm talking to a group of women, I start with avoid conflict at all possible. And how you do that is you want to make yourself a hard, the hardest target you can be. So in nature and among humans, people are looking for an easy target. Don't look like a victim. Yeah, well, right. Because no, you don't want to be an easy target. You want to be a hard target. And there's a few really easy things that I hope if if nothing else, like your listeners can walk away from this and go, ooh, I remember Allison told me that. I'm going to do this okay. differently. That will make you a harder target. So the first one is super simple, but very counterintuitive, which is make eye contact. 
we often think that if we make eye contact with somebody who's potentially hostile or aggressive, that we're going to provoke them in some way. And that's really not true because if this person wishes you harm, you're not going to provoke them to being a violent person. If anything, making that direct eye contact is going to tell them a few things. One, I'm not afraid, which already makes you a hard target. Two, I physically see you, meaning I can identify you later. I've, I, right. And three, it puts your attacker at a potentially a tactical disadvantage, right? You don't really attack people from the front. You want to attack people from behind them. Seems obvious, right? But if you think back to, you know, the last time you're maybe, you know, on the streets and you saw this erratic person or this person giving you a hard time, our instinct is to look down or to, you know, like look bare our head in the phone and look busy. And it, it's exact opposite is true. So I think you want to convey a feeling of if there's predator and prey out there on the street that you're not the prey. So making eye contact is really one of The second one that, that especially women struggle with is get over being polite. Like it's, it's okay to be rude. Right. And so we (laughs) so often, right. We'll hold our apartment door open for a stranger or let somebody in the elevator or step when someone stops you in the street and asks you a question, we just feel so rude saying like, no, thank you. Or, you know, I feel uncomfortable and I don't want to seem rude by crossing the street right? We have to get over that feeling because it's better to be rude than to be victimized. And that feeling that you can feel where you feel uncomfortable and nervous, a predator or somebody that wishes you harm can feel that too, right? And so just get over this feeling of being polite. That's the thing. You don't have to be nice to everybody and you can create boundaries and you set you set up a, a boundary very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, they've shown pictures of women that look like victims and they show pictures of women that don't look like victims. Yes. The one that doesn't look like a victim is rocking on down that street, head up, watching, looking, and really uh, right. attentive. Take the headphones out of your ears, right? Yeah. So that's it. Obviously, I don't, I want, that's kind of a cheap answer, right? Avoid conflict. Yes, we always want to do that. But let's say, <laughs> let's say it's unavoidable. Conflict is unavoidable, yeah, right? Where we really focus is we all have these subconscious processes, these stress responses, all of us. So both sides of the conflict are going to have it. If you can control yours because of your training and your self-awareness and your mindfulness, and the other person isn't doing that, you are now at a huge advantage of how to control it. So at any, I don't care if it's traffic or if it's between your your manager who's driving you crazy, take a second to say, what is my stress response doing? Do I, am I having a fight response? Am I having a freeze response, right? What is, and, and actually ask yourself that question because what that's gonna do is click out of your lizard brain, out of that system one sort of instinctual thinking and into your cognitive brain, which is your system two thinking, you're going to be able to sort of, control your instinctual reactions and then command them. Whereas the other person's probably not doing that, right? So if you find yourself in some sort of conflict, take one second, engage your cognitive thinking, your system thinking, what am I feeling right now? And then achieve whatever your outcome is. I want this person to calm down, for example, right? Be that. And that person instinctually and subconsciously will mirror you, will mimic your tone and your and your behaviors and your nonverbal gestures, right? So think, I am in, like you said exactly, violence begets violence, right? But thank God, de-escalation begets de-escalation too. It yeah. goes the other way, yeah. right? So take a second, don't be part of the problem, right? Take the explosive material out of it. Be a part of the solution. So get out of your fight or flight mode and go into your cognitive brain and problem solving. To tell you the truth, Allison, I have talked my way out of some tough situations. I worked in a uh, federal medical center. (laughs) So I have gotten, I have talked my way out of some 
pretty tough situation. So yeah, I mean, again, the most important thing is don't be a victim. Don't be a victim. Don't make yourself a victim. Don't look like a victim. Don't act like a victim. Control act the situation like, yeah. you're in. Exactly. Yep. You, the, the stronger party will always control the situation. And especially for women, if you're not physically stronger, you have to outsmart them. Yeah. And luckily, so much of our actual physical body is impacted by these parasympathetic reactions. That, yeah. That's our only shot, right? To, to use those effectively against any sort of attacker or opponent or adversary to say, I'm not, not going to be a victim. And then if I'm in a situation, I'm not going to let that person control it. I am going to control the emotional volume and where it's headed towards what outcome. Yeah, I'm going to control how I react. That's what you can do. Well, Allison, I tell you what, I want you on my side. When we get to that tough, <laughs> that tough situation, I want you on my side. That's so, right. Absolutely. And I always joke that, you know, I work in my corporate security job and people say, you just seem so calm all the time. And I laugh. And I said, well, you know, if these are the skills that kept me alive, like in the cold, dark alley in Chicago, where I was just praying the guy didn't run out the back door, because really, what am I going to do? You know? that it doesn't normal workplace conflict or these kind of pressures just don't stress me out so much. There's not a kid chained to the radiator somewhere, right? And so for most of us, luckily, we're not in these life and death situations. And so if these skills I know work to keep people alive on the street, they definitely can work for all the rest of us who are yeah, just yeah. managing and navigating conflict in our daily lives. Absolutely. Well, these are great tips and great things that we can all think about. Well, how do they learn more about you, where, where you are? Uh, somebody wants to hire uh, someone to de-escalate and teach about uh, preventing violence in the workplace and, and security. Where, where do they find you and find more about what you're doing? Because it's, it's so very important because education is the key. Yeah, the more absolutely. we know, the more we can prevent and uh, prevention is everything. That's where I come from. So how do we learn more about you and how they can learn more about what they could do and you can do for them? Sure. Yeah, you can find a ton of information as well as how to contact me on our website, which is project-hummingbird.org. And also you can find me at allisonsands.com. Um, both will, will reach me directly. And, you know, that's exactly what we're trying to do, which is, you know, yes, I see the need in law enforcement. That's my background. But man, we want to make sure that we find exactly what everyone's specific need is to prevent that violence from happening. And there's nothing sadder or more tragic to me than responding to a violent incident and saying like, yep, this looks, this, the pattern is the same as all the rest of them, right? So anything that we can do to educate people on how to prevent that violence from happening, that's what we're all about. I mean, law enforcement is there to respond when it happens. We want to be there on the other side to say, let's, let's give people the best possible chances they can of staying safe and staying yeah. healthy. And nobody should feel afraid to go to work. Nobody should feel afraid at work. And that includes our law enforcement officers, right? Who, who deserve to feel safe and yeah, be respected well, as well, right? So we have to thank those that take, that go to the front lines to protect us. So those, that is definitely something that we need to thank them for. But yeah. uh, thank you for helping to keep us safe in our homes, in our communities and at work. Uh, this is so very important. So Congratulations, continued great work, and uh, let's stay in touch. Have Thank you very day. much, Dr. Nancy. It was so great talking to you. Appreciate Thanks. it. If you enjoy these smart, amazing conversations, please subscribe, rate, and review them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And read and enjoy more amazing stories in my books. In this together, how successful women support each other in work and life and leading women.
20 influential women share their secrets to leadership, business, and life. Thank you for listening.